Amen. Good singing. It's good to hear your voices fill the room uh, and those pauses and instruments to hear you singing to the Lord. We um, are thankful to have that privilege this morning. Um, I want to just draw your attention to the fact that there are some, uh, as of this morning, there are some dartboards or scarecrows or prayer cards, however you'd like to use it, um, in the foyer and at the welcome desk for me and my family. Um, So you could use that as a dartboard if you'd like, um, or you could put it in your garden as a scarecrow if you would like, but we would prefer you to put it on your refrigerator and pray for us um, frequently and often. So if you want to pick one of those up on the way out this morning, we would be grateful for that. Uh, We'd be more grateful if you pick it up and pray for us. So there's some at the front out here. If Silas put them where he said he did, you may have to look for those. And then there's some at the welcome desk back here. I I do want to just take a moment to try to answer a couple of questions that keep coming up. I've done a couple of podcasts, and uh, apparently everybody doesn't listen to the missions podcast. And there's a couple of recurring questions that I just want to just take three or four minutes to answer before we get into the message this morning. One is... Um, that we will be living stateside. Some people think we're about to pack up and move uh, to our particular region that I don't want to say on live stream, uh, which is a persecuted region, a closed part of the world. And um, that's not the case because of the nature of the work I'm going to be doing. One, I'm going to be traveling throughout that entire region to set up training centers for indigenous national pastors. So that's going to require me to hit several countries Um, over the coming years to establish training centers where nine seminary-style courses will be taught to uh, indigenous local national pastors in these closed countries. Uh, Part of that job is also to equip pastors here to go with me and to go without me sometimes to teach those courses. So I have to be here in order to equip those pastors. I have to travel there to work with missionaries on the ground to set up the training centers. So I'm kind of like a bridge between the missionary on the ground and pastors in the pulpit here to bring them together to provide solid, doctrinally sound, theologically sound, biblical teaching for these indigenous national pastors that can't get it otherwise. So that doesn't mean that at some point we won't be over there for a longer span of time than might deem normal. We hope and we pray that to be the case. But home base will be here in the U.S. Um, And I will travel throughout the year to teach pastors. We are hoping and praying as well for Mandy to have opportunities to go and teach women at least once a year or so as the Lord would provide. So that's one thing I wanted to clarify. Um, Those of you that are, you know, over our children or something at this point, that's that's not... um, not the case. We're not heading over there full-time overseas. This, this job requires travel back and forth. Work here, work there, okay? Second thing is, we are fully 100% faith-based. Um, though this is uh, loosely affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, we are not paid through the cooperative program, so everything is faith-based. And I just want to say thank you to many of you that have already decided to partner with us monthly and are doing that now. We greatly appreciate it. It's encouragement to us. It's uh, motivation to us. We thank you for that. And if that's something you would be willing to pray about doing, please do and let me know. I'll be glad to direct you with uh, how to how to partner with us on a monthly basis. So those are two common questions. If you have questions, come ask me or, or Mandy. 
Um, probably not the kids. They tend to give one answer questions like, yeah, mm, kind of a grunt. But me or Mandy will answer with sentences. Um, so feel free to come answer, ask us any questions that you have. We want to be as transparent as possible, even the whys, not just what's going on, but why things are going on. We want to be an open book, okay? So please, don't, don't be intimidated. Um, I know I'm an intimidating guy, but don't be intimidated, okay? Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. During these five weeks in October, we are looking at each of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation because this is kind of Reformation month. Uh, Martin Luther sparked it on October 31st, 1517, so we're just taking the month of October to, to celebrate that, to remember that, to think through that, and we're looking at the five solas that characterized that Protestant Reformation. We started by looking at sola scriptura, or the belief that Scripture alone, Scripture alone is God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient Word, and it is therefore the final authority, the sole authority, for the church of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we saw solus Christus, or Christ alone. This sola affirms that Jesus Christ alone is the way that the ungodly, like us, are justified in God's holy sight. This morning, we come to sola fide, or faith alone. In other words, we receive the redemption that Christ alone has provided for us and has accomplished for us through faith alone. So according to the Scriptures alone, Christ alone has provided redemption for us. And we receive that redemption through faith alone. Now, if we are made right only through faith, or through faith alone, we need to understand faith, don't we? We need to understand what faith is. And one of the greatest texts on faith in all the Bible is Hebrews chapter 11. You've probably heard of it, not as the hall of fame, but of, as the hall of faith, right? of all these different faithful men from the Old Testament. But we're going to look at the first six verses today. I think it will give us a very good understanding, hopefully a very good understanding of what faith is. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at these six verses together and then pray that the Lord would help us because we're going to need His help this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, though through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Let's pray. Father, we ask your help this morning as we consider 
faith. We talk about faith. We sing about faith. We say that we have faith. But often we don't truly understand what faith is according to your word. So we pray that since it is through faith alone that we receive the redemption of Christ alone, we ask you to help us understand faith with fresh eyes, with fresh mind, with fresh understanding this morning. We need your help, Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit, to to speak through me in spite of me and that you would speak to us by your grace and by your mercy. And God, if there's a person here who does not have true biblical saving faith, we ask you to awaken them to that reality this morning and draw them to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, we need to ask the question, what is faith? What is faith? Thankfully, the author of Hebrews answers our question in the very first verse of Hebrews chapter 11, where he gives us the closest thing we have to a definition of faith in the Bible that I'm aware of, and he simply says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is as close to a definition of faith as we get, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, what does this word hope mean? Here's my definition of hope. Hope is expectantly waiting. Expectantly waiting for something that you trust you will one day get to enjoy. Let's just say heaven, for instance. We want to trust that one day we are going to get to experience heaven. So we expectantly, or we should, expectantly hope for it. We expectantly wait for it. We trust God for it. Does that make sense? Or if you are uh, in your late 50s, early 60s, and you're in good health, you expectantly wait for retirement, right? You're expectantly waiting for that. You're hoping for that. You're trusting that one day you're going to get to enjoy the promise of retirement. And at First Baptist, we want you to enjoy, enjoy retirement by investing your years for Christ in that retirement, right? Right? Yes. That, that's right. Or, if you're middle-aged with a family, you expectantly wait for vacation. Trusting that you're going to get to use the vacation that you have accrued, right? Or if you're a child, you expectantly wait for Christmas morning, trusting that you're going to get the thing or give to your parents, right? Give to your parents that, that gift that they have wanted. So hope is expectantly waiting. It's not just, well, I sure do hope my ship comes in one day. No, it's expectantly waiting for something that you trust you will one day get to enjoy. There's another way this word can be translated, and I like this, and it is um, as active waiting. It's not just sitting around twiddling your thumbs, but it's actively waiting. So we, we hope for heaven. We need to be actively waiting for heaven, not just sitting around waiting to die or for Jesus to come back. We need to be actively pursuing and hoping and waiting for heaven. So hope is expectantly waiting for something that you trust you will one day get to enjoy. Now faith is the assurance of the things 
or the thing that you hope for. It's the assurance of the thing that you hope for, that you expectantly wait for, that you trust you will one day get to enjoy, and it is an assurance that is so strong, it's an assurance in the trustworthiness of this hope that is so strong that it becomes a conviction. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is the assurance of the things you hope for, expectantly wait for, and trust you will one day get to enjoy so much so that it becomes a conviction. In other words, faith is being so certain of the things you hope for that you are already experiencing the joy of those things that you hope and wait for. Did you, I want you to stay with me because I know I'm just using a lot, of, a lot of sentences here to try to explain faith to you. But faith is being so certain, so convicted over the thing that you hope for, that you're already experiencing the joy of the things that you hope for and that you wait for. In other words, if my hope and I'm expectantly waiting for and trusting that I'm going to get to enjoy heaven one day, faith says, I'm so sure of it that I am, I am living, in a sense, in eternal life and in heaven right now. This is why faith is the assurance, the confidence of the things hoped for. We see how faith is depicted by the TV preachers. And I appreciate the three of you that have got me false prophets t-shirts so far. <clears throat> there were bets being taken, not on if I was going to get a false prophet t-shirt after that sermon a few weeks ago, but who was going to be the first. Abigail Doral won that award. <clears throat> but the TV preachers... The TV preachers project faith as this thing where we just get so worked up and we get so stirred up and we pitch a little temper tantrum in the stage floor up here to twist God's arm to give us what we want. You've seen them. They get so worked up and stirred up that it's almost like they're just pitching a little temper tantrum to get God to give them what they want. That is not faith. That is not faith. That is foolishness. And it's being a charlatan, thinking that you can manipulate God into doing something for you that you want Him to do by throwing a temper tantrum. It's like your child in the aisle of, the, of Walmart when they see the candy stand and they, they throw a temper tantrum to try to twist your arm to give them what they want. Sometimes you cave. God doesn't cave. God's patience can't be worn out. This is not faith. Faith is isn't about convincing God to give you what you want. Now hear me. Faith is not about convincing God to give you what you want. Faith is about convincing yourself that what God wants and has promised you is guaranteed. That's what faith is. It's not convincing God to give you what you want. It's convincing yourself that what God wants and what God has promised is guaranteed. Here's my definition of faith. This should be in all the systematic theology books. Faith is to be so convinced of the future fulfillment of all the promises of God that you live 
as though they are present reality, even when everything around you, and I should have added everyone around you, says you are being foolish and even irrational. Faith is to be so convinced of the future fulfillment of all of the promises of God that you live as though they are a present reality even when everything around you and everyone around you says you are foolish and even irrational. Isaac Ambrose wrote this in his book, Looking Unto Christ, and I want to read this quote to you because I think he hits the nail on the head and he does such a much more eloquent job than I do of trying to explain faith. It says this, It is not enough to know and consider and desire and hope, but we must believe. Now this is the nature and property of faith. To apply all these ancient and future doings and dealings of God to ourselves as if they were now present. Hope eyes chiefly the mercy and goodness of the promise. Stay with me now. Hope eyes chiefly the mercy and goodness of the promise. But faith eyes mainly the authority and truth of the promiser. Hope looks upon its object as future. But faith only looks upon the object as present. Both make a particular application to themselves, but hope in a waiting for it and faith in a way of now enjoying it. Hence, faith is called the substance of things hoped for. It is the substance or confidence of things hoped for as if we had them already in hand. And herein lies the sweetness of faith in that we believe not Christ only to be a Savior and righteousness, but my Savior and my righteousness. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that we expectantly wait for, that we trust God for. It's the conviction of things unseen, so much so that we live in the present reality of those things that are not yet, but are still very real. And how does that apply to our salvation when we think about Christ alone, by faith alone? Martin Luther put it best. The sweetness of Christianity lay in pronouns. When a man can say, my Lord and my God and my Jesus, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Hope is trust in the fact that we have a Savior. Hope is trust and expectantly waiting and hoping that we have a Lord and that we have a God. But faith is saying, He is my Savior. He is my Lord. He is my God. We see, secondly, that it is faith alone that saves us. This faith alone that saves. Look in verse number 2 of Hebrews chapter 11. For by it, this faith, the men of old gained approval. 
Now, who's he talking about the men of old there? He's talking about the men that we read about in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 all the Old Testament. These men of old gained approval not by being Jews. Not by being biological children of Abraham. Don't think, well, the Old Testament Jews were saved and all the Gentiles weren't saved. Don't think that these Old Testament Jews were saved by sacrificing. Don't think these Old Testament Jews were saved by keeping the feasts or by keeping the law. They were not saved in any of these ways. They were saved only by faith and by faith alone. Martin Luther said, the faith of the fathers in the Old Testament era and our faith in the New Testament are one and the same. Faith in Christ Jesus, although times and conditions may differ. The faith of the fathers was directed at the Christ who was to come, while ours rest in the Christ who has come. We're saved by faith alone. That's Old Testament. That's New Testament. That's men of old. That's men of today. If you'll turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15, I want you to see this, that prior to Moses and the law, and Galatians really fleshes this out clearly, but prior to Moses and the law, Abraham was saved. He was made righteous. He was declared righteous. And he was not saved by keeping the Old Testament law of Moses. It hadn't even been given yet. He was not saved by being a Jew. He was not saved by being Father Abraham. He was saved by faith. Look in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. It says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Keep in mind now, Abram's encroaching on a hundred, and his wife is encroaching on a hundred, and they've been childless. This is an impossibility. For him to have children biologically. And yet God said, you're not passing the baton to Eliezer, your, your chief servant. You're going to actually have a child. And he will be your heir. In verse 5, he took him outside. God took Abram outside. And he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Unbelievable. But God said it, God promised it, and in verse 6, he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteous. Now notice, hope is believing in the promise, the promise of multiple generations of blessing through Abram. Hope is hope and, and in the promise. Faith is focused on the promiser. And do you notice what it says in verse number 6? He believed in the Lord who made the promise. He had the assurance 
of the thing hoped for, a conviction of things not yet unseen, because he put his hope not in the promise, but in the promiser, in the Lord. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was saved by grace through faith in the coming blessing of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 15, the apostles speaking here in verses 10 and 11, asked the Jews who were wanting to force the Gentiles to keep the law, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. It's by faith alone that saves Then and today, Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It is faith alone that saves. Number three, faith precedes good works. In verse number four, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Faith precedes good works. Let me explain. We have to believe that Cain, Abel, Seth, and a whole lot more since Adam lived so long, knew what offerings were acceptable to God from Adam. I mean, Adam had walked with God in the garden. He had fellowshiped with God in the garden. He had heard directly from God in the garden. He had witnessed the first sacrifice, remember, after they had sinned, God covered them with animal skins. How do you get animal skins without killing an animal? He shed the blood of an animal and he clothed them, he covered them. We have to believe that he passed down the details of sacrifice to Cain, to Abel, to Seth, because we see them almost immediately offering sacrifice. The details of acceptable sacrifices were passed down, passed down, passed down. They were finally written down by Moses in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1, listen to the first sacrifice described. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you going to bring an offering to the Lord? Here's what, hear, hear, hear this part, guys. If you're going to bring an offering to the Lord, hear me. You need to bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Just stop at the doorway of the tent so that you can be accepted by the Lord by offering this burnt offering from your herd or your flock. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. This is what is believed Abel brought to the Lord. A burnt offering from his flocks. 
from his herds. You see, if a man brought this offering, what would he do? He would lay his hand on the animal's head, and the animal would be slaughtered at the tent of meeting. The blood would be spilled out. It would be cleaned in a way specified by the latter part of Leviticus 1 there, and he would be burnt on the offering. Why? Because symbolically, the sacrificer is saying, I'm laying my hand on this animal's head, and I'm transferring my sin to this animal. And when you cut that animal's throat and it bleeds out, its lifeblood is being shed to cover my sin for yet another period of time. And then that animal would be burnt, which shows that it paid the price for your sin, the wages of sin is death, and not only did it die, but it also suffered your eternal punishment for sin by being burnt. Does that make sense? It's the same thing for us, right? We lay our hand on the head of our lamb without spot or blemish. Not a lamb from our flocks or herds, but the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, 4-6 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. We place our hands symbolically upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is without spot or blemish, and by God's great mercy and grace, our sins, as numerous as the sands on the seashore and as the stars in the heaven, are transmitted from us to Christ, where God the Father judges our sin in Jesus on the cross until they are not just covered, but they are cleansed and taken away forevermore. Faith. In Christ. We put our faith in Christ as they put their faith in the promise of atonement, transferring their guilt to these animals. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Abel offered the burnt offering of Leviticus 1, intended to remove the guilt of sin. Cain offered the grain offering of Leviticus 2 which was an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving. Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. When anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it, put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. What is wrong with a grain offering? A grain offering is an offering of thanksgiving. It's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God for who He is, for what He's done for you. Is anything wrong with that? Absolutely not, unless it is offered without the blood sacrifice of atonement. The grain offering always came after the burnt offering. So Abel comes and he offers what's first. The atonement that is promised by God through faith in the coming Messiah as he puts his hand on that lamb who is symbolic of the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and it was sacrificed and burnt. Cain 
hops over that and brings some grain to give thanks to God without offering the burnt offering first. You don't bring good works, even thanksgiving to God, apart from the blood of Jesus, apart from faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? All of our works are filthy rags. And some of you, like Cain, are getting it all out of order. You know you don't have peace with God. You know you don't have assurance that your sin has been paid for. You know that you don't have assurance that you're right with Jesus. So what do you do? You work, you work, you work, and you do good. You hope to, to get some peace and some assurance, and you make Cain's mistake. And it is not pleasing to God. First comes atonement. Then comes the fruit. Faith precedes good works. First comes faith, then comes works. Number four, faith is always accompanied by good works. It comes before good works, and it is always accompanied by good works. Verse number five, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Who on earth is Enoch, and what on earth is this guy talking about? Go back to Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, and we read a little snapshot of who, Genesis, uh, of who Enoch was. It says that Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We get this picture of Abel who came with a pleasing sacrifice, faith in the atoning work of God. We have this picture of Cain who tried to get the cart before the horse and bring some good works of thanksgiving without faith in the atoning work of God first. And now we get a picture of Enoch who had faith in the atoning work of God and he didn't stay there, but he walked by faith. And he walked by faith and was so pleasing to God that God just was walking with Enoch one day and said, you know what, it's further to your house than it is to mine. I'm just going to take you home. And Enoch didn't die. Enoch was pleasing to God because he not only believed in faith, but he walked by faith. True faith is always accompanied by good works. We are saved by faith alone. And we are sanctified by faith alone. We are saved by grace through faith and we walk and we work by grace through faith. But we do walk and we do work. Galatians chapter 3, Paul asked the Galatians, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? They know how they receive the Spirit, by faith. And then he says, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, you don't come to Jesus at the atonement, at the atonement and receive atonement through faith and then pull yourselves up by your bootstraps Suck it up, buttercup, and do your thing with all your might and hope you can make it. That's not how it works. You come to God through faith, and then you walk with God through faith. It's not about you. It's not about your works. It's not about your level of ability. It's not about you manning up. It's not about you pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, but it's by you continuing to walk by faith. You are saved by faith. You are sanctified by faith. And faith does not leave us unchanged. 
Martin Luther said, Faith is a work of God in us which changes us and brings us to birth anew from God. It kills the old Adam that we learned about last week. It makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all our powers and brings the Holy Spirit with it. What a living, creative, active, powerful, powerful thing is faith. It is impossible that faith ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. It is always active. Whoever doesn't do such works is without faith. James chapter 2. We're almost done. Turn over to James chapter 2, verses 14 and following. And James makes it very clear that if you think you have saving faith, but there are no works that accompany that faith, you have fooled yourself. James chapter 2, beginning in verse number 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself. If you have saving faith, it will be accompanied by works. But someone may well say in verse number 18, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The demons believe. The demons believe in God so much so that they shudder, and in the original Greek, that word gives us the impression that if they had hair, it would stand on end when they think about God. When's the last time your hair has stood on end when you think about God? And you just think that just saying you believe is true saving faith? The demons believe more than you believe, and they're going to hell. True saving faith is not just saying you believe, but it is a belief that transforms you so that works come out. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now what came first? Genesis 15 or Isaac being offered on the altar? Genesis chapter 15. And God said, your faith has been reckoned to you as righteousness. And then we get over into Genesis chapter 20 when he offers Isaac on the altar and his faith is proven. He really does mean what he said back there in Genesis 15. Abram really does trust God. You see, verse 22, that faith was working with his works. Faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the heart also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Don't get confused and think that we are saved by faith plus works. Good works do not produce salvation. You can work yourself into a frenzy and you cannot produce salvation by your good works. Saving faith, saving belief brings salvation. And when true salvation comes, then comes good works. 
In the words of John Calvin, we are saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. Faith is always accompanied by good works. Lastly, faith pleases God. Without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. We see this type of walk in Enoch. He walked with God by faith. It pleased God so much that God took him. Now, what was our definition of faith or my definition of faith? Faith is to be so convinced of the future fulfillment of all the promises of God that you live as though they are a present reality even when everything around you says you are being foolish and even irrational. In verse 6, we get a couple more hints as to what faith means and what faith looks like. Faith is coming to God, convinced that He is real. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is. Let me just stop and ask you a question. I know we can all do the church thing. We can come in and sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and we can come in and say the prayers, and we can open our Bibles, and we can take the notes, and we can go home, and deep down in our hearts we think, I just don't really think God is real. We can pray a sinner's prayer. We can walk down an aisle. We can join the church. We can get baptized. We can teach Sunday school. We can get ordained as a deacon. We can preach behind the pulpit and we can get in our car and go home and deep down in our hearts say, I'm just not convinced that God is real. We can tell our parents what they want to hear. We can play the game. We can dot our Baptist I's and cross our Baptist T's and yet not really believe. It would do us all well to just stop and ask ourselves, do I really believe that God is real? Do I really believe that the God of the Bible is real? And look, if you don't, then it's not a time to play games and pretend. It's a time to recognize that and be real. Because faith at its very foundation begins with believing that God is real. Do you believe that God is real? And not only believing that God is real, but believing that God rewards. He says, without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. I'm going to tell you, maybe some of you believe that God is real, but you have trouble believing He's a rewarder. You know, I believe God is real. He's this angry guy up in the sky waiting on me to take a wrong move so that he can squash me like a bug and give me what I know that I really deserve. God's angry all the time. I'm trying to hide from God. I'm trying to please God. I'm trying to satisfy God because I'm afraid of God. And God is this big bad boogeyman in the sky. And the reality is the God of the Bible is good. What does Romans 8.28 say? We know that God causes all things all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Faith at the very foundation is not running from God, hiding from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden, but running to God and coming to Him, believing that He is real and that He's not just real, but that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And He's good. He's good. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that God is good? 
If you believe in God and you believe that God is good, it's a lot easier to get to being convinced of the future fulfillment of all of the promises of God, so much so that you live like they are a present reality even when everything around you says you're being foolish and irrational. It is faith that pleases God, a faith that comes to Him, believing He is real, believing He rewards, hoping in His promises. Would you come to God that way this morning? Listen, it's the only way that you'll be acceptable to God. Don't try to pull a cane. Well, I'm just going to try to do better. That's just what some of you say every Sunday after you leave. I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to try to get my life a little better in order. I'm going to try to get things ironed out. I'm going to try to get things leveled out. I'm going to try to get things taken care of. And then I'm going to come to God. It's backwards. Don't offer your grain offering of thanksgiving and good works without first coming to God for atonement through faith. This is the only acceptable way to come to God, not by working or trying to do good or praying a sinner's prayer, getting baptized or joining the church or teaching Sunday school or becoming a deacon or going on a mission trip. It's in faith alone laying your hope upon the head of Jesus Christ, our sacrificial lamb, and trusting God to atone and judge your sin, all of your sin, in Him instead of you. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus Christ can exchange His perfect righteousness for all the record of your sin, past, present, and future. It's an exchange that you don't want to pass up, but that you can only receive by faith by coming to God, believing that He is, and believing that He's good, and hoping in His promise. In the words of John Calvin, faith is like an empty, open hand. An empty, open hand stretched out toward God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Would you humble yourself, empty yourself, And stretch out that empty, open hand to Him today. It is by faith alone that we receive the redemption provided for us in Christ. Stretch out that hand to Him this morning. And you will not pull it back empty. You won't pull it back empty. You offer it empty and you'll pull it back full full of the righteousness and the goodness and the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Christ who came and lived the life that you demand and require of us and who took our place on the cross as our sacrificial lamb to atone for our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin. And God, we thank you that by faith, by faith, we can receive that redemption. Lord, if there's one here who's been trying to do good, do better, get their life in order, offer work after work after work to find some peace with you, I pray that you would humble them to the point where they would just extend an empty, empty hand to God in faith, in your goodness. And we pray that you would fill it And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.